Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Darts and Letters. Hi, I'm Ren Bangert, a producer here on the Darts team. On the show, we explore the politics of ideas from all angles, the good, the bad, and the bizarre. This is day two of our second week of themed programming here on New Books Network. This week, we're exploring the politics of education. And don't forget, after our summer of weekly themed programming, we'll be launching brand new episodes of Darts and Letters right here in September. Today's episode was originally broadcast back in early 2021. In it, our host Gordon Kaddick takes us on a journey to uncover the art form underpinning our entire capitalist society, the grift. We're looking at grifting in education. Fundamentally, this episode is about how meritocracy is a grift. You'll hear from a mysterious friend of Gordon's who writes papers for hire. And you'll hear a critical take on the PMC, the professional managerial class. All that and more on today's Darts and Letters broadcast. Over to you, Gordon. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is a show about intellectuals and the work that they do. But it's not just for the Ivy crowd, it's for everybody. It's been a little bit too heavy on this show lately. We've talked insurrections, we've talked fascism, proto-fascism, strange apocalyptical visions. Of course, it's important to dig into these ideas, but let's get serious for a second. Actually, let's get frivolous. Because this society that we live in I don't think that it's dominated by people who have anything resembling a strong, well-articulated ideological program. No, I think it's dominated by grifters, by cheats, by cons, by frauds, by people who don't really believe what they tell you. They just need to tell you it to get ahead or to sell you something. Isn't that what capitalism is really about? The grift. This is an idea that's gained lots of traction lately. There are too many think pieces to count, but let me summarize all of them for you. They all say one version of this. Grifting is quintessentially American. And the Trump era turbocharged all this grifting talk because he was so clearly a grift. But be honest with yourself. Don't you have a bit of reverence for the grifter? Perhaps not Trump, and the reason why not Trump is I think it's because he grifted people below him. 
he punched down. But there are grifters who grift the powerful, and we tend to lionize them. Today on Darts and Letters, we look at grifts. Do they have a radical potential? I speak with Catherine Liu, author of the new book, Virtue Hoarders. It is a polemic against the so-called PMC, the professional managerial class. You know, people like me. They tend to believe in meritocracy. That is perhaps their defining characteristic. But Catherine thinks that meritocracy is just one enormous grift, one that we would all be better without. You know who else doesn't believe in meritocracy? Let's just call him my friend. My friend writes papers for hire. He's written all sorts, from undergrad term papers to master's theses to, yes, even PhD dissertations. How does he live with himself? And perhaps the more important question, what does his scheme tell us about education and how do we change it? To crib from Marx, thus far the grifter has only cheated the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. All that and more after the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. Meet a friend of mine. Being on the program, normally I would, you know, obviously say who you are, but I can't. So what, what, what do you want me to call you? Why don't you come up with something interesting? Why don't, why don't, why don't we say... Bill Faulkner. I can't tell you his name because, well, what he does is not really legal, but it is a huge and very important industry, so I think it is certainly in our interest to understand it. For that reason, I've agreed to withhold his name and his real voice. Faulkner, I love it. Okay. We just need a bit of your voice to play around with, so I pulled some um, some quotes here from all the president's men um, from Deep Throat, so can I get you... Bill to tell me, the list is longer than anyone can imagine. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence community. The list is longer than any of us could have imagined. <laughs> Sorry, you, you kind of lost me there. That's a bit of a long uh, sound right there. Um, all right, this is another famous uh, deep throat call. Uh, just he says, "Follow the money." Follow the money. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to get our producer to try out different voices for you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we'll make sure to make it sound really bad. Try, try to give me like some tracheotomy thing, you know, where it's... Uh... This friend of mine writes papers for hire. He's written all sorts, from term papers to PhDs, and he's done it for years. It happened quite innocently where we were just hanging around on a Friday night having drinks, just a couple of college buddies, and there was one buddy who was really swamped because he had a bunch of papers that he had to get done, and there was just no way in his mind that he can get it done to the sort of level that he wanted to get it done. And so 
we were tossed around and, you know, I just asked him, you know, for sort of shits and gigs about, oh, what's the paper about? Oh, it's about multiculturalism in Canada. Oh, that's pretty easy. Shouldn't be too hard. I could probably do it for you. And I just kind of laughed it off. I wasn't serious about it. It's just kind of drunk talk. And sure enough, I woke up the next morning hungover and I woke up to a message from him saying that, hey, man, are you still on for doing my paper? And so I thought about it. And I was like, uh, you know what? Sure, why not? I'm pretty open this weekend. I'll crush it out for him. So naturally, just like every other student, I procrastinated until the last moment, a Sunday afternoon, and I started writing it. And I wrote it for him. I charged him something like a hundred bucks for it, which is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not all that much. And he ended up getting the paper back about a week later, and he came up to me and he's like, hey, I got my paper back. And immediately I'm thinking, oh, he must have failed. Like nobody just comes up to you, you know, all kind of aggressively and, you know, corners you. And I was like, oh, shit, here we go. And he's like, I got a 93. And he was so stoked that he just kind of <laughs> threw the hundred bucks at me and he was so happy. And, you know, he gave me a hug and that's kind of how it got started. And it kind of snowballed from there. And from that point, it's been about eight years that I've been doing this. And so throughout this eight year span, the scope has expanded. Um, so it started as political science. It's jumped to history, theater, economics, geography, English literature, criminology, business management, education, which is one of my favorites, obviously. And I've written degrees at all levels, uh, undergraduate, masters, doctorates, you name it, I've probably written it. You've written a doctorate? Like the full dissertation? That's correct. <laughs> it's amazing. I, one of the things that, that you told me once I think is so funny is just like um, that you're one of the most like uh, well-educated people around, just not on paper. Like you've got, you've got more <laughs> degrees than just about anybody. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of funny how that works where, you know, in a lot of these instances, I would say in the significant majority of these instances, I have done better for my clients uh, in terms of their grade level than I used to get when I was in school. And so it's kind of funny how it works. Um, money's quite the motivation, I guess. <laughs> Explain to me how you actually do it, because it, it strikes me especially you're talking to a PhD student in education, you think, oh, okay, well, I've got this sort of specialized training, like, it's going to take years, no one can, can do what I what I do exactly. Yet, you just described writing in all of these diverse, disparate fields from political science to sort of business stuff to education stuff. How does one kind of become well versed enough in short order to do it? Like, what are your techniques? I think there's two parts to this. I think one is just a natural curiosity for subjects. And so that's something that I've always gravitated towards. I, I like to think that I'm pretty eclectic as a person. And so my interests are varied and I try to pursue those interests as much as possible. Uh, Wikipedia wormholes are not foreign to me. I love it. And I can spend hours upon hours going through it. And it's, it's just that natural curiosity I think drives you. And part of that natural curiosity is confronting challenges along that way. And so, for example, if I have to learn third or fourth year economics, you know, that, that sounds like a challenge that I'm willing to accept. And, you know, it, it forces me to expand, you know, my thought processes and think in different ways and, and really practice empathy. So that, that's, I think, number one. I think the other element would be 
after you've done enough of this, eventually you get to a point where it just becomes pattern recognition. And I think this perhaps delves into a slightly larger point about how a lot of academic literature is cloaked in the same sort of jargon across disciplines. Once you understand the manner of writing, it's very easy to just input that manner of speaking into your writing and have blanket phrases, fill in the blanks type approaches where you can turn, you know, one quote from a book into, you know, a six and a half page analysis about what you know, Shakespeare really meant about this or what this, you know, Kenneth Waltz really meant when he was talking about structural realism. I mean, we could go as in-depth as we'd like in any of these subject matters, but I think ultimately it's really about pattern recognition within a particular discipline and just kind of applying that uniformly. And so if we're talking about a crash course and I'm trying to explain to someone how you can go about learning the craft, I would say the quickest way to do it would be if you're writing in a particular discipline, read three or four academic papers in succession regarding that subject matter. And I think immediately, naturally, you'll begin writing in that manner in the same way that, you know, once you read a couple of novels by the same author, and then you maybe perhaps draft an email you'll see those tendencies creep into your own writing. Who are your students? To the extent that you can generalize, there must be some patterns. Some of those students are ones who just want to check off those boxes. Perhaps they have a part-time or full-time job that they're doing simultaneously with school. Another class of students are those who, you know, are kind of English as a second language or, you know, perhaps aren't as proficient in that field. So, for example, a lot of schools, you know, if you're taking, say, science, if you're in some sort of science field, they're going to require you to take, you know, two credits of English or what have you, two classes of English. So they'll enlist the expertise of someone like myself who can go out and satisfy those requirements, not, you know, really compromise their grade point average, and then they can more seamlessly move on. And then I would say there's another class of students who are just rich and they just don't care. Um, I think <laughs> I think a lot of university is that experience that you get. And one could argue that that's actually the most valuable thing about university, going out and being able to do those extracurriculars, being able to talk to people who share or disagree with your ideas, you know, extracurriculars, et cetera, you know, Tinder, all that stuff. And so if you're really rich and you're probably going to take over, you know, your father's company in you know, 10 years hence, it kind of doesn't really matter, right? That's that's also par for the course for people who are studying business management, right? Because that's kind of your job in business, is it not? To find the most capable individual to do the job and do it more efficiently and more effectively than you can. And so in a way, it's it's training for their future. As managers, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, but it's true that they're um, ability to kind of reason through a sociology paper is not really going to be what they're doing, um, but delegating, surely. So, yeah, I figured that a lot of them would be rich. What are they like, the people, in their interactions with you? How would you describe those? Many of my clients have come from referrals. And so actually all of my clients have come from referrals outside of that initial one. And so... I think there's already an expectation of what they're going to get. But I think it's, it's always kind of that first initial time where, you know, and again, I'm, I'm a lot like 
a regular student in the sense that, you know, I'll procrastinate until the very last moment. You know, I know exactly, for the most part, down to a T, how long something is going to take me. So I will go up until the limit until I literally cannot take another minute. And then I'm sitting there for 13 hours and crushing something out. And so, you know, a lot of my clients, you can imagine, at least initially or during that first assignment, when they're unsure about my work pattern, will get extreme anxiety. They're thinking, oh my God, it's due in 12 hours. I haven't heard from this person and I already paid them X amount of money. They're going to steal my money and run away and I'm now going to miss my deadline. No recourse to what are they going to do? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so it's kind of a funny scenario, but, you know, invariably they get that assignment in advance of the deadline, ultimately. And when they get their grade back, they're very pleasantly surprised about the outcome. And then there are some students who, you know, and these are my favorite students, the ones who, from the outset, will send me the syllabus, will break down all of the courses, will send me the individual assignments, provide all the deadlines, and they provide me with essentially all of the course material in advance. I've had people ship me books, textbooks, to ensure that all of their work adheres to the requirements of that course. I didn't know that, that you'll even do sort of the other class assignments, like, you know, group discussion or like online posting or like the smaller thing, like you're just kind of end to end. Absolutely, end to end. And so I'll get login information from my students and I'll be able to very easily log in engage with other students in the class, you know, effectively create a persona around the student and really engage in vibrant discussions. I've gotten in arguments, you know, I guess as far as you can get into arguments in online written discussions, I've got into full-on arguments with people about different subject matter. (laughs) And, And it's great just, you know... I'll, I'll get really heated in the moment because, you know, obviously I, I'm here to trade ideas here legitimately. And so I'm kind of in there and, and, and engaging and then I'll walk away from it thinking that, wow, this person has no idea that the person that they were engaging with isn't even enrolled in their institution. <laughs> well, I'm, I remember a story once a friend of mine was in an engineering class and he had a, a classmate friend of his who was a a rich kid from Hong Kong, I think. And um, he just really couldn't hack it in the class because of, you know, various language barriers or whatever the case might be. And I remember he, he was very upfront with him that I've got somebody doing like all of my class assignments. And uh, at one point they had a, they had a group project that they had to do. And of course this is pre COVID. So it was a group project that they had to do together. And he says, buddy rolls up with some other dude. And it's like, this guy here is going to like, give my contribution to the group. And and the guy that he brought along even like did most of the group's assignment. And I guess no one, no one said anything because it was kind of in their interest to all just get this guy to, uh, to do their part kind of thing, you know? (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just, I would like, outlandish. I can't believe it, but people don't seem to get caught for this kind of thing very often. Has anyone, have there, have you ever had any scares or, or anything like that? So there was one particular situation where I had a student in an economics class and 
a few of these uh, class uh, assignments were group projects. And so I would submit our portion of the assignment and then the others would submit theirs and then it was all good. And so we kind of went ahead and did that, got, you know, 80 plus in the course. It was all well and good. It was fine. Unbeknownst to me, the student with whom I was working, that individual went ahead and, you know, there's online services that you can use where you have completed an assignment and they, you can submit it on their system and they will pay you money for it. And so then, you know, students who are struggling to get through an assignment or understand subject matter from the course, they can go sign up for an account, pay a money and be able to access all of the papers or all of the assignments from a particular course. Right. And so this student went ahead and submitted this group assignment or the collection of these group assignments to this online service. Now, if you go and search the name, because the names are attached to it, so you can go ahead and search the name of that individual or the group members, and it'll show up on this paper writing service. So what ended up happening was one of the group members, I guess, had Googled his name because, you know, what else are you doing when you're sitting around during COVID other than Googling your name? This individual went ahead and Googled their name, and this assignment came up. And this individual went, contacted that student who had put it on the uh, sort of system, said that I'm going to report you to the graduate studies office and went ahead and reported all of that to the graduate studies office. So now the student who was having a custom paper writing service myself do the assignment, then went ahead, put that group work to try to make money off of it and almost sort of exposed the whole operation in a way because suddenly now there it, it wasn't even their assignment that right. they were putting on there and <laughs> so it was a complete disaster they but plagiarized what, you <laughs> exactly <laughs> they got greedy exactly they, they absolutely got greedy and you would think that someone who's already getting their degree would probably just kind of call it quits on the shenanigans at that point but <laughs> evidently not and It kind of, and the outcome of it, I thought was very, very interesting. And I I think what you mentioned earlier about, you know, the friend of yours who, you know, enlisted, you know, I guess a spokesperson for lack of a better term to come in and kind of deal with this whole situation and, and how you mentioned that it worked in everyone's interest to not say anything. So the outcome of this situation was absolutely nothing the graduate student's office didn't even respond to the matter, didn't even acknowledge its existence, and just neatly moved on from the matter. That individual could have gotten anywhere from a written reprimand where any sort of dalliance, any sort of further dalliance would lead to possible expulsion to outright expulsion for that transgression because that would constitute academic dishonesty. So not only did they not get an official reprimand, nothing actually happened. And this kind of leads to the point that you were making. It's it's actually in everyone's interest to allow this to continue to happen because it continues propping up the academic industry entirely. It continues to provide great research, which in many cases the professors themselves can use for their own work which happens more often than you would think. I've, I've written papers where 
or, or provided, you know, discussion points for my clients. And professors have literally taken that information and used it for their own work. And so it, it, it works in everyone's interest to allow this to continue to happen. And the fact is, the amount of resources that it would take to actually uncover this is just far too much for the actual trouble. Yeah, that's interesting, because it feels like it's definitely against the material interest of the university to clamp down on it. Because if there's an industry that can basically ensure that this whole group of rich students who can't actually hack it at university can hack it at university, then you've got the tuition dollars, especially international tuition dollars, and then maybe even um, you know wealthy benefactors in the future. I want to talk about the the morality because there's there's it's funny there. I was trying to puzzle through a couple of reasons why I'm not more outraged by what you do. The fact that they don't get caught is more of an indictment of the university itself than of you or of the people that are writing those papers. Because if you can make an institution where everything is just kind of rote, formulaic expressions of like classes that are taught to you by a TA, and then you can have a bunch of like semi-literate rich kids just kind of parrot it back and um, no one even really seems to notice, well then like we should be madder about about the institution. When I think about these things, I immediately think about, you know, the detriment that a lot of these institutions cause, namely, you know, just the idea of that exclusion, that exclusionary principle that keeps so many people out. Um, to me, uh, you know, at, at, at worst, I, I think that I am a very horrible symptom of a very endemic problem that exists in it within academia and i think there is really no incentive considering how ingrained academia is with business uh, private industry with the legal system and this idea of manufactured research I, I mean that is really the heart of the issue and so this is by no means me attempting to absolve myself of you know any of the responsibility in this. There's no doubt that what I'm doing constitutes academic dishonesty. It it lacks a sound ethical standing. But at the end of the day, I think you know if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, this is chickens coming home to roost, really, for the education system. I think I I agree with you, but I only go so far, and it's because like I. I feel sort of just as alienated about the academy I always had. I went into university with high expectations and was immediately disappointed by um, what I saw. And of course, I'm still here, so I've seen glimmers of of things that truly are inspiring and, and worth fighting for and worth um, protecting. And I guess my thinking is that we kind of have a choice whether or not to be cynical about these institutions. And our cynicism, of course, is always right because they continue to fail us. But isn't it kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, shouldn't we kind of struggle against and try to make a better academy rather than just kind of like, well, it's all, it's all a sham, so let's all just be grifters. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's all just be cheaters. Like, in a sense, you could be making for a better academy, but you're not. Absolutely. And I mean, in a strictly technical sense, if you look at the sort of effort I've put into all of all of this work, I mean, perhaps if my name was on this work, we would be 
we would be in a far better position um, because perhaps that would provide me a platform to be able to talk about all this. Um, I mean, there's also the point to be made that maybe people like me do need to get caught once in a while um, so that there is actually a platform, the legal system, to be able to explain you know, through some sort of plea bargaining agreement, ideally, uh, about actually how endemic these problems are so that to the very least, at least it'll exist in the annals of the justice system uh, or at least provide some sort of theater that, you know, we can bring to light a lot of these problems that exist that, frankly, the university does not want to talk about at all. Um, so so I think in that regard, I, I would agree with you. Um, but then there's that also the flip side of it, where there are individuals who have attempted throughout history to change the nature of the way academia operates. And those individuals, and I'm thinking specifically of Aaron Swartz, who attempted to liberalize knowledge to literally provide important research to people all over the world free of charge jstor and to a larger degree mit was unwilling to actually drop the charges against him and so if there's no doubt that aaron swartz committed a crime you're talking about the like pdf dump these the thousands of papers right Correct. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, just creating that software that would slowly pick, um, you know, uh, academic journal articles from JSTOR specifically and, you know, uh, be able to upload it online so that people have free access. Now, ethically, Aaron Swartz was in the wrong, but morally, he was completely correct in the work that he was doing. And ultimately, actually, funnily enough, in the end, it was actually the research that he provided for free to an individual who was actually able to make massive scientific advances as a consequence of that one journal article. And so uh, I think regrettably for me, at least, and perhaps this is a coping mechanism so that I can look at myself in the mirror, the cynicism tends to pervade more so than the actual, you know, the other elements. At the end of the day, how do you feel about what you do? It's it's a complicated relationship. I think that for me personally, I, I've always had this zeal for for learning more. And so for me, it provides me that avenue, I think. And I can only really speak for myself when I say that Part of the fun for me is having access to all of this information to be able to search and go on tangents through all of this academic literature and and just to be able to understand things that I never understood before. And so I would say that's that's the positive. The negative is that, you know, <laughs> what in the end, what am I really getting out of it? Uh, sure, I'm getting money, but... You know, it, it, you you want to live a purposeful life, and I'm not sure that this is the purpose um, to you know be, be able to be in academia, but not in the way that necessarily somebody desires. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm an academic mercenary, so at the end of the day, I have to be able to live with the with what I'm doing for whatever benefit it provides and be that money or, you know, my own sort of pursuit of knowledge or even just that sort of last flying fuck you to the academic establishment that is <laughs> not really lived up to its hype, so to speak. 
that's kind of, I suppose, how I can reconcile what I'm doing. It's interesting you say that. There's, I'm not, not going to go so far as to say a purity, but the fact that there is genuinely like an intellectual pursuit here that you're doing, that you're excited for discovering all these new ideas in diverse disciplines. I never would have thought that that was part of the draw because I, I would have thought that the money and just the time pressure, it's just about like getting it done as fast as you can. And, you know, I, I feel the same thing. Like I, all students feel this, especially when you get up to the graduate student master's level where you can only do so much and you only have so much time and you end up kind of um, discovering a set of ideas and going only so far as the pressures will permit it because you've got to teach, you've got to publish, you've got assignments, you've got et cetera, et cetera. And there's this constant like reaching and discovering and then going, but I can't actually do it, right? Like I can't just spend a week in the library uh, being a total kind of like dilettante and going where my ideas take me because I, in a sense, am also an academic mercenary as sort of we all are. And it like actually that part is the most uh, alienating I've found in my personal experience. When I find something, I want to do more, but I don't have time and I have to move on and I have to write my paper faster. And that's something that we need to find ways to escape. But I, I, I was struck that you said that kind of you have that, that kind of uh, the joy of the intellectual pursuit because it would strike me that the time pressures on you are even tighter because it's about getting a return on investment or a return on your hours, right? Getting it done as fast as you can for your clients. So how come you feel that? Someone like me who is, who's interested in actually producing this sort of knowledge, we'll, we'll call it, you know, quote unquote knowledge. What, in the actual production of knowledge, it, it's not just about producing the knowledge. It's also about being accepted as knowledge. And what I mean by that is, for example, today, if I would like to write some sort of epic paper on John Donne and I wanted to pursue that, I could go ahead and write that on my free time and it could be impeccably researched. It could be some of the most earth shattering work on John Donne ever done but it will not get a lick of attention from the academic establishment. Why? Because I don't have a degree, uh, I don't have a master's or a PhD in English literature, and hence whatever research or knowledge that I produce wouldn't be actually considered legitimate knowledge by the academic establishment. It wouldn't be eligible for peer review or anything of that nature because I don't check off the sort of requisite boxes that you would need to produce the knowledge. This is really, in a sense, my only avenue to be able to pursue these interests and allow it to be considered legitimate, absent me going back and getting all of these degrees in all of these areas. So... In a way, I'm allowed to go out and live vicariously through these students and to be able to pursue my interest and have it still be considered legitimate knowledge. Because in the end, 
if some other student is reading this information sometime in the future, say, and they glean value off of it and are able to then go ahead and have it impact their life, then in a sense, I'm still accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish in the very beginning, but I'm just doing it through different means. You still did the job, you just didn't get the credit. Exactly. Credit matters to a lot of people. For me, it has never really mattered. That was, what did we say we were going to call him? Bill Faulkner. He's written a lot, but nothing that I can put in the show notes. However, I do recommend an article from the Chronicle of Higher Education called The Shadow Scholar. It's written by a very similar type of person, and if you want to learn more about the industry, I do recommend you check out that article. In case you're wondering, no, this person I spoke to did not write The Shadow Scholar. But still, read it. In 1977, Barbara and John Ehrenreich coined the term Professional Managerial Class, or PMC. The PMC refers to people like me, academics, journalists, middle management types. We certainly aren't the ruling class, but we are relatively privileged, and we are creative professionals. But PMC has become a kind of slur. Because the PMC seemed to have grown increasingly far apart from popular labor-oriented organizing. That's why Catherine Liu has this blistering new anti-PMC polemic. It's called Virtue Hoarders. I should tell you, Catherine herself is, of course, a PMC. She's a professor at UC Irvine, but she's no fan of the cultural politics of the people around her. Someone I know very well, who's extremely well-off and wealthy, after 2008-2009 in the economic crisis, really did tell me in a very passionate way that the problem with the credit and the financial um, system, and she's a Democrat, you know, that problem was caused by poor people all wanting flat screen TVs and cable television. They overspent. That was the cause of the financial crisis. So you have this sense that someone who's very wealthy, who manages their money well, is virtuous. And the poor are somehow unvirtuous. They're lacking in self-control. And they got us in this mess. No, they did not get us in this mess. People at Goldman Sachs invented this thing called the credit defaults, the credit default swap, and it created new forms of debt and um, new financial instruments that actually precipitated this crisis. But this is a kind of moralization of a financial and structural problem with capitalism that's actually espoused by a person who believes themselves to be liberal. Here's another great example of PMC virtual signaling. In California, we're all getting solar panels for our homes because we can get Upper middle class people can get tax breaks to get solar power. Rather than having massive infrastructural change for solar power and renewable energy, 
Now I can put the solar panels up. And people actually do say this to me. Like, they'll be like, I don't feel bad about turning on my AC anymore because I have solar panels. It's like, oh, good for you. Like, this is going to solve the environmental collapse one by one, upper middle class families putting solar panels up on their rooftops. No, this is actually not going to solve anything. And it has this, and, you know, in terms of consumption, for instance, you know, people say, I only shop at Whole Foods. I only buy organic. It's like it would break the bank for most ordinary people to buy all organic at Whole Foods. Whole Foods is like the most ridiculously overpriced supermarket you've ever been to. But if you feel better than other people shopping there, then you are virtue hoarding. That's your, you know, you got a problem. If you're <laughs> if you're recycling and you feel like you're better than people, other people, it's like an individual yeah. act that is supposed to substitute for any kind of collective, infrastructural, large-scale um, solution to problems. Like uh, many of my colleagues, many of the people in my class are opposed to single payer healthcare. I don't know why. I know exactly what you mean. I'm I'm thinking of, you know, I lived in Vancouver for 10 years and, and definitely the kind of cultural politics around food and kind of like farm to table restaurants everywhere and just generally like looking down upon people who might eat uh, McDonald's or something like that. Like that's definitely, that was definitely in the air there and it's still in the air here in Toronto where I'm at. I wanted to ask you more about kind of the political trajectory because it seemed like Obama was kind of the the arc, the ultimate meritocrat the ultimate, yeah. or oh, yeah. PMC. So, well, let's look forward then. I mean, what does it mean that Biden is here now? And what does that mean for the future of merito meritocracy and the PMC? So Biden has surprised me in his um, first few days as being more progressive than I had imagined by, you know, reconfiguring the National Labor Review Board, getting rid of a lot of Trump appointees. But he's basically like returning to a no Obama normal slightly to the left. And it is great that Bernie Sanders has all this um, visibility and power in this new administration. And there is a relief in normalcy. The PMC, though, will never, ever look at the root of our problems with regard to democracy, representation and exploitation and inequality and call the thing by its name capitalism. The PMC is trained not to be anti-capitalist. If you look at political scientists, now they're, everything that they do is about trying to find the center. And that center does not hold. And we can do slightly improved things for working class people, for the majority of people who are really suffering right now. But there will be, because with every democratic administration that I've lived under, an intensification of virtue signaling. And neglect of mass problems. And one of the things that I think is that we need is to train a core of socialist minded experts from engineers to managers to logistics people who will be ready to take on the massive reorganization of capital that's needed. And, you know, maybe the left is not mature enough in the United States, at least, to perform the work that needs to be done. The thing that I think is going to happen is if we don't have universal health care in two years, 2022 is going to be so ugly for the Democrats, because we're going to have put band-aids on all of these problems that the pandemic has um, brought out. And, um, but I don't want to be a Debbie Downer right now. It does feel like getting rid of the, you know, the Trumpian problem is a huge thing. But if we don't 
embark on a massive universal program of reorganizing how healthcare is distributed in this country, then I think continued distrust and um, factionalism and extremism will grow apace in this country because people are suffering. So, uh, and my class has been trained too well in centrism to really offer any solutions. Now, there are a lot of people who say the American working class is so beaten down that, you know, we need more enlightened PMC people. If that's the case, that's really sad. But I feel like maybe like the PMC political class needs just, it's just, we need to support the work of unions. And that sounds very boring. And it <laughs> doesn't have any kind of like flashy theoretical signals to it. But I really feel like it's the important, we need to have people who are able to put their noses to the grindstones and do that important work. I take your point, but I, I am still kind of cognizant of just how big the PMC is. And it, it feels like the solution can't just be, okay, let's focus on something else and just ignore this class if it is, if it can be called a class. And so like, I'm trying to think of a strategy and there's a couple things that I've sort of been teasing through in terms of how to respond. I mean, there's the obvious of like a structural solution that just destroys them. Like, you know, like, and that's further down the line, a world in which we don't have a real meritocracy, which, you know, it's not realistic right now. But I think there's another kind of, this is very, very real online. Uh, and maybe you're part of it, I don't really know, is this sort of like cultural strategy of like besmirching them and like taking them down a peg in terms of their virtue, right? As I think about that strategy and it, it feels cathartic to me, it also like, I can't tell if it's more leftists that are doing that or reactionary types, you know? And somehow I, I worry about like a strange bedfellows <laughs> yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that, that's true. But you know, I do think the repudiation of PMC values is a really important activity. Like people could be like, that's just a lot of talk. But you know what? A lot action comes through talk. So if you get your ideological positions correctly, it has uh, intense and important consequences. One thing which you talked about in terms of just destroying its the PMC's power could be the dissolution of the meritocracy. Well, there is a concrete thing that can happen there. Mm -hmm. Open admissions. Yeah. to all quality public universities and the dissolution of Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton's endowment into pu their public universities. Merge Princeton with Rutgers, merge UC with Stanford, open all admissions. Let anyone who wants to go to college come to college. If you can't hack it, you drop out. But why are you paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for an education? That is one of the structural problems of American higher education. And if you took that away from the PMC, its gatekeeper role, that would be like a material benefit for working class people, for young people, for non-college educated people. So there is like a policy translation to what you were talking about in terms of yeah. the liquidation of its power. And it has to do with free public higher education. Now, I know you have a little bit of that already in Canada, mm -hmm. right? I was actually thinking about that. Like this is so, uh, it's less pronounced in Canada because the difference between, you know, the top universe, they're all public essentially. I mean, less and less public, but there's no Harvard here. You know, top schools like McGill, U of T, these are public institutions largely. And so the difference between me going to U of T versus University of Saskatchewan is like, you know. It's not that good. It's not that yeah. big. 
which is great. I mean, it's so it, it is so uh, liberating to have to just not quite have as much status anxiety. That said, yeah. jobs are scarce, and so a lot of my colleagues. It's not like these are the only schools we can go to. We apply to Harvard and Princeton and Cambridge, et cetera, right. et cetera. So it's here too. But what about that question about strange bedfellows? Because I feel like a lot of this discourse online, like it gets to me, maybe it's impossible to generalize, but like the most vocal critiques of say critical race theory like when you look at let's just like go on twitter and see who's talking about that it's not us you know it's not the left so what do we do about that is that an alliance this is the thing about a lot of the right-wing critiques is that they get a lot right their final idea of society and self-interest is hobbesian and i can't accept that but we should be able to have conversations with them. And I'm less and less phobic about it. Like, let's talk to the right wing about what their views on class formation is. I think um, Julius Krein wrote an interesting thing in American Affairs about the PMC. I agree with him, like up to 60% of what he proposes, maybe even 70%. And then we differ. But let's make our differences clear. That 30% disagreement or 40% disagreement, though, it's, it's, it's of a very particular kind. I mean, like the, the ultimate conclusion they want, you said it, is, you know, this Habesian world or, or maybe it's just a racist one or, you know, who knows what exactly. But, um, you know, I just worry that we're in a sense like emboldening if they outnumber us, you know what I mean? Like that their toppling of the PMC will not then usher in a, a kind of universalist left politics that will be a rapacious, racist, conservative kind of backlash and anti-science and all of these things, right? Like in a sense, that's what I think a lot of people worry about. Right, right. I don't think Julius Krein represents that kind of conservatism. But yeah, I mean, he basically represents like a more just capitalism. And that's the horizon. A more just capitalism with a nativist industrial class in anti-globalization conservatism, right? Right. If the PMC is toppled, it may well be from the right. That's absolutely a risk. So two other strategies that I was thinking of in terms of, uh, of the PMC, and I think the one is winning them over. Like there are certain kind of liberal PMC types that when they look at an issue like climate change seriously, it leads them kind of inevitably, if they're honest with themselves, towards radical conclusions. And I'm wondering if there is opportunities there, like instead of a kind of politics of scolding back at the PMC, there's there could be a sense of a coalition with the PMC. Is that possible? I think like in isolated circumstances, I've seen it growing and happening. Let's take the question of nuclear energy, for instance. Like there's a lot of liberal PMC you know, phobia about nuclear energy that's just like knee-jerk liberalism, like they think nuclear war happens with nuclear energy. But there's more and more research that says like real sustainable clean energy is not possible within for the needs of 7.5 billion people without nuclear playing a role. People on the far left are saying that, and there are technocrats within the scientific community who are saying that too. So that I think is a hopeful alliance because you know what? Like, Composting your garden is not going to save the planet. We are really at a climate emergency. Like it is a five alarm fire. And um, and so what you say about the reorganization of, you know, our 
energy economy on a massive scale has actually experts and engineers and scientists also agreeing with like radical steps. On the greater issues of inequality, I find that much harder to talk to PMC liberals about because they want to go right away to racism and white supremacy. They don't want to talk about capitalism. They can talk to me and I'm their friend and they'll listen to me and be like, oh, that's what Catherine says. But then they go back to reading The Guardian, The New York Times, New Republic, The Atlantic, like the ideological hegemony that obscures any deep engagement with inequality and the five alarm fire that is inequality in the United States. That is a much harder battle. That was Catherine Liu. She is a professor of film and media studies at UC Irvine. She also has a new book out. It's called Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. By the way, I have a theory as to why we call them the PMC and not the professional managerial class. It's just really hard to say. This is like the eighth take of this line. But that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn, and our chase producer is Mark Apollonio. Our researchers are David Moscroft and Addie Susnick. Our composer is Mike Barber. Our graphic designer is Dakota Coop, And I'm your host, Gordon Caddick. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. And if you can't chip in, at least do me this favor. Help us get this show to more people. The best way you can do that is just to tell a friend. But beyond that, you could also rate and review darts and letters on wherever you find your podcasts. If you have feedback, if you don't like what I said or what our guests said, you can always let us know. The show email is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at dartsandletters, and my handle is at Gordon Caddick. You can find all that in the show notes. We receive funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and our lead academic advisor is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. Darts and Letters is made in two places, Toronto, Ontario, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Toronto is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Vancouver is on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This is a production of Cited Media. We make other fine shows like Cited Podcasts and Crackdown. You can find those and others wherever you find your podcasts.